0: you may be seated. There's a light up there. It's off at the moment, but it'll come on in a few seconds, maybe. I would just like to say it doesn't signify divine approval or disapproval. (laughs) I guess I got that right. And uh, certainly it doesn't indicate the presence of the Holy Ghost up there in the rafters. (laughs) I'd like to uh, address the uh, strange, it's actually a weird story, but a very important one that's in the Gospel of Luke for today. It's the so-called resurrection appearance of the risen Christ to the disciples on the road Leading out of Jerusalem toward Emmaus. It's a very important story because without the resurrection appearances of Jesus, the whole Christian enterprise would have collapsed and disappeared from history because he had been executed, as you know, by the massed powers of the Roman occupation. And the charge against him in the Greek way of stating it was lestai. It uh, is mistranslated into English as thief, as applied to the other two who were crucified with him, but, but him as well. Lestai was a word used in that context to me uh, by the Romans, to mean that he was a bandit. But a bandit in that context of occupation and rebellion against the occupiers meant uh, an insurrectionist. So he was a dangerous enemy of the Roman Empire. And so his being crucified was a huge blow to the disciples. And they left Jerusalem on the way to the village of Emmaus, which is neither here nor there. And then comes this story from Luke's Gospel in which Jesus falls in with them and they spend a fair amount of time uh, in conversation. And they do not recognize him, which of course is odd. And then uh, they finally stop and have a meal, which Jesus turns into a Eucharist. And it is at that moment that a, a very remarkable thing happens. And their eyes, it says, are opened and they recognize him. And at that point, in another very enigmatic phrase, quote, he vanishes ...from their midst. There's a little sequel to it, and that is that after he's gone, they decide to reverse and go back to Jerusalem. They're part of the outer circle of 72 disciples. We know that because one of them is named Cleopas, whose wife Mary, by the way, was also a disciple they decide to go back to Jerusalem and reconnect with the inner circle of of the 12, now down to 11 because of Judas's suicide, and then from Jerusalem take into themselves the powers of the kingdom of God and go out in a mission of mercy to heal the sick to reconcile those who are estranged from each other, to be peace builders, and altogether to make the world a better place for other people. It it all turns on their uh, strange against the expectations arising out of defeat their strange encounter uh, with the risen Christ. That's why it's an important story. But uh, in all candor, of course, the specifics of it do not stand up to 21st century logic or even common sense. So I would like to import into my account one tool out of a fairly ample toolbox that biblical scholars have for understanding such things. Then I'd like to give you a personal story out of my own life, just because there's nothing religious about that story. It's perfectly secular, but I think I might have glimpsed in that secular moment something of the elusive presence of the divine like the disciples glimpsed the elusive presence of the risen Christ and then I'd like to circle back briefly to the story one more time and be done Uh, that tool that I'd like you to consider as a possible way for understanding this very important story. is something I was introduced to by a dear seminary classmate who retired a few years ago, by the way, as the Dean of the Calgary Anglican Cathedral. It was the magnum opus of a distinguished professor at Union Seminary in New York, a man, by the way, named Samuel Terrien, And his book was called The Elusive Presence. Uh, Very briefly, the gist of it was that Terrien held that if you were to read the Bible uh, in its entirety and attended to what you were reading fairly critically you might discover as he felt he had discovered that there are two characteristics or qualities that tend to validate this event or that event in the everydayness of our lives as being one in which the elusive presence of God or the kingdom of God seems to be present. The first of those qualities or characteristics, he said, was that we could see in certain events what the Bible calls the glory of God. The word glory comes from the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew term tellingly is kavod, which connotes a certain heaviness, a a substantiality. And uh, 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 the best illustration I can think of is that in that crucial story of how Moses went up the mountain to meet more or less face to face with the living God and receive the tablets of the law, which, which enabled the people... to to walk in the divine footsteps as the people of God. When he came down from the mountain with those tablets that, so to say, had been slipped through a tear in the the curtain between our world and a totally different order of reality where G-O-D is, When he comes down the mountain with those tablets, the Bible says his face shone. It's as if that somewhat heavy substance spilled over through the tear and got on his face. And so that's that business about the glory spilling into the everyday life that we live is one of the important characteristics or qualities that would suggest that maybe the divine is meeting us, however elusively. And the second quality or characteristic is that we who are caught up in that moment, in that context, can experience a moral claim being placed upon us from somewhere outside. And in the story of Moses with a shining face, that moral claim was felt by the people down at the foot of the mountain who said we must walk in the divine footsteps following the so-called commandments that uh, will identify us as the people of God. Okay, set that aside, and I'd like to try to show how that works to greater or lesser degree in the one mundane example I'd like to lift up just now for illustrative purposes, and that is that in uh, 1977, we were living in North Carolina, and I had just luckily succeeded in defending the um, dissertation I had written for a Ph.D. degree at Duke University. And Sally wanted to go uh, into a graduate program in the nursing school there. So to support the family, I took a job in protective services to children. I worked for the state of North Carolina investigating allegations of child abuse and child neglect, and did that for three years. One fine day in early January, the kids in Durham, North Carolina, returned to school after a somewhat lengthy Christmas vacation, and a call came into our office from a middle school teacher. She said, a 14-year-old girl has come to see me. She has told me that her little brother had infuriated their father over the Christmas break. And then the father had locked the little boy into a closet where he still was. And the mother and the sister were doing their best to take care of him bringing him food and so forth so I drove out to the school and I interviewed the 14 year old little girl who, who impressed me greatly and then I drove out to, the, to her home in order to see the little boy and to make a long story short I ended up taking emergency custody of both kids and placing them in emergency foster homes. That's not a good deal for children, as you would know, but at least it was a safe environment. I learned along the way that the father was one of the meaner people I've ever known in my life. Well, in in that state, and I'm sure in all of them, there must be an order authorizing emergency custody and continuing the custody that I had of the children. Or, if you can't make the case well enough, the kids have to go back home. So a lot was at stake for that little girl She had taken an enormous risk. And uh, now we were in court to see if we could keep custody of the kids, the default position being they'd have to go back uh, to their father. And I didn't know if she would be willing to testify or not as to what she knew about the way things worked in that home and but she agreed to do that and so there she was a little kid up in this, um, this big witness stand and her father down there glaring up at her trying to influence her out of fear and she didn't look at him but she started to tell what she knew and then uh, to my horror, the court decided to adjourn. And the next day, we had to go through all this again. Would she testify again, or would she n- not? And I didn't want to force her. I couldn't, ethically. But she did decide to testify a second day. And in the end, we, we got custody of the children I asked her when it was over, what caused you to risk so much from your furious father? She said simply without self-importance and with no melodrama. She said it because it was true. She said, I wanted to give my brother a chance to be a child. It a big statement from a 14-year-old little girl. And I felt from that moment on, and I have felt it all the years of my life since, that in her bravery, I caught just a glimpse of the glory of God. And I could see in what happened a moral claim being placed upon her, and she expressed it by her determination to protect her brother, at enormous risk to herself. Now back to uh, Luke's gospel, and I'll be done. Um, The whole Christian enterprise at the time as I may have said earlier, was dependent upon the disciples recognizing the risen Christ. They obviously didn't initially believe in any of that. Otherwise, they would never be on the way home. The whole endeavor now being dead like their teacher was dead but they did recognize him in the moment in which he celebrated the Eucharist in their midst. And it was a strange circumstance, as I said, because almost like a wraith, he suddenly vanished from their midst. But they recognized him, caught a glimpse, and that was enough. They went back to Jerusalem, these men in the outer circle and some women, they joined the inner circle of disciples and they went out to heal the sick and to reconcile enemies and in general to make the world a better place for all the people. The consequence of that for you and me is that as all down the years since, when we participate in this Eucharist, we join in a banquet that started on the other side of that curtain. It's a banquet whose origin is in the kingdom of God. And And that continues on a little bit in the everydayness of our ordinary lives. And it's just possible is the main message that we too might catch a glimpse of the risen Christ here and we just might experience a moral claim to take our place in their company, go out and make the world a better place for others.